It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. Hello. Hey, how are you? What's going on? Oh, I'm just riding the heat wave. <laughs> oh, you and I, you and I. It's really bad here in Texas still. I mean, at least at this point in time, most of the continental United States can uh, join right in with us because they've had insane temperatures all the way up to the northern border. So, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I mean, hopefully it'll kind of cool off in a little bit because we're not the only ones. The bees are tired of it, and all the animals are tired of it. So. That's true. I am definitely looking forward to a cool off. I think for us specifically, we have cooler temperatures moving in by the end of this week or beginning of next week. So hopefully not much longer, fingers crossed, but we shall see. Well, I hope that uh, is going to be contagious. You know, you don't hope for contagion these days. <laughs> That's what <laughs> bad words, bad words. <laughs> it's like a shouting bomb in the airport, right? Right, right. <laughs> I can get you arrested nowadays. Um, so as uh, you guys are pretty much like still stuck straight up in the middle of the dearth and will be for probably another month because August is brutal down there and August hasn't technically started yet. Yeah, it's not. It's, it uh, feels it's like dirt. it, but no. Yeah. And, and when we say dearth, it's really nectar dearth because believe it or not in Texas, we, we have pollen most of the year. Um, and, and there's very few areas in central Texas anyway, but in Texas more generally, where there's no pollen for extended periods of time. Yeah, well, and one of the things out there, too, we've talked about before is the simple fact that you need to know the flora and fauna of your area. And anybody that is lucky enough to have native wildflowers that are specifically the native sunflowers, not the massive ones that make all the seeds, but just your garden variety, native, the yeah, the, the quote unquote, the weeds, but mm -hmm. the native sunflowers, they actually bloom in July and sometimes can lead off into August. They do good in that dry heat and the bees absolutely partake from pollen from those as well as a little bit of nectar. And then you've got different types of trees that release pollen periodically throughout the year based on that specific species of tree. So there is always something out there. There's all kinds of odd little things that bloom and something that people take for granted are grasses. So yeah. bees will actually go and harvest pollen from certain types of wild grasses too, and take that back and use that. So there's always something in most areas, not necessarily everywhere, but there's always something out there that the bees will try to find. It's usually the nectar that is the bigger problem. Right. I mean, that's what we find as well is that, um, you know, pollen in the grand scheme of things dictates the amount of brood that's being reared, but nectar is the carbs, the energy that they are needing to rear that brood and go fetch more uh, food, water, propolis, all the other things, right? And, and the limiting factor is not necessarily the pollen, it's more the carbs, the nectar. So in case you haven't figured it out yet, uh, today <laughs> we're talking about pollen, <laughs> but- And more specifically, pollen substitutes. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say, but more specifically <laughs> the pollen substitutes. So there will be a research article that will actually be linked to in the description of this episode. And the research article is uh, this, the shortened title because it's much longer, is going to be mm -hmm. reviewing the efficacy of pollen substitutes. And this article was written by Emily Nordyke and James Ellis. So it is a wealth of information and like, well, like a lot of collegiate type articles that I've read where they're going through and doing research. This one is one that is actually compiling research from a bunch of different sources and a bunch of different projects that have already been carried out and comparing them against each other to kind of see commonalities or differences. And so you will, as you, if you read it, if you go down through and read it, you're going to find a lot of instances where they will say, well, in this study, it showed positive results, but in this study, it showed no results. And in this study, it showed negative results. And so you've got to go through and, and of course, like everything, 
take it all with a little bit of grain of salt, read through it and make sure that you fully understand to the best of your ability what it is that they're actually talking about and pay attention to the changes or the things that were, may not have been accounted for when they were doing some of the studies where, where they say, well, we're not sure here, or it showed a different result here than there, because those different results are usually attributed to something else. So scientific method, basically, you should only change one parameter at a time, because if you change more than one parameter at a time, you're not going to know what truly gave you that result. If it was this parameter, that parameter, another parameter. So you try to keep it at just one. And in some instances, those parameters weren't necessarily monitored. So whether or not there was any natural pollen coming into the colony to supplement um, in addition to the pollen substitute that was provided, some things like that sometimes were involved in some of these. So that's why you'll get radically different results from two studies that, in theory, were studying the exact same scenarios. So that being said, that is the article. Again, you can go down there, check out the link. If you want to read the article before you listen to this, feel free to pause it. Go check out the link, read the article, come back, or you can listen to us banter about it back and forth for a little while and then come back and, and read it on your own time, whichever, doesn't matter. You don't even have to read it. You can just listen to us talk about it. <laughs> right. I mean, who has time sometimes to go read articles? But That's this right, and it's a big one. <laughs> a long one, and it took me a while to get through it, but it was worth it because it allowed me to make some conclusions in an informed manner so I can discuss that with our apprentices and anybody that we talk to, because it, it, it is always kind of that big thing that you should feed your bees because otherwise they're going to be malnourished and pollen supplements uh, get a big, you know, part of that. So my big thing has always been that commercial beekeepers and backyard beekeepers don't necessarily have the same needs and goals. And so I was curious to see how that uh, was affected by the pollen availability and pollen supplementation um, in backyard beekeepers world and commercial beekeepers world. So, which is totally different. Yeah, so, and you you got some interesting comments and, uh, and results too from the beekeeping community, um, specifically a commercial beekeeper who kind of seemed to flip-flop their story and didn't really like they uh, it almost seemed like they were being combative and argumentative for the sake oh, of being argumentative thank you yeah I, I thought it was being argumentative for the sake of yes yeah but you know and and you know i mean i'm opinionated and i <laughs> i have some pretty strong ideas about how um what's good for the bees and what's good for the beekeepers and it's not always overlapping so and i'm not shy about talking about them well, and I, I did pull up some, I've got some bullet points. I, I took some notes and I've got some bullet points here that I found interesting that kind of goes back to some of the arguments back and forth between the commercial standpoint and the backyard beekeeper standpoint. So um, if, if you could summarize briefly your reasoning about the difference between a backyard beekeeper and a commercial beekeeper. So a backyard beekeeper doesn't necessarily move their hives and they're relying on the forage that's available around them. They're not necessarily um, having to brood up their bees outside of the re re regular seasons, meaning uh, to go take them on um, pollination contracts in the middle of December or January when there's nothing that blooms around them. And so their needs and goals can also be different, right? They might not be looking to maximize population for the sake of being able to split 20 times or to produce, you know, a thousand pounds of honey. Um, not that, you know, managing as a backyard beekeepers cannot produce you a lot of honey. It depends on your forage and what's available and the health of your colonies. But the point is that the, the goals and needs are completely different. When right. you're talking about a commercial beekeeper, for example, they've got to take their bees out to pollination contracts or move them around quite a bit. And they might not have the forage that they need at the time that they need it to boost those colonies, make them explode, have them ready for the things that they need them for, including um, uh, honey production sometimes. But the goal for them is more industrial in a way. It's, yeah, it's, it's money-driven, uh, profit-driven. And yes. I think at the at the very core of it, your backyard beekeeper is already set up 
to be more in line with the natural ebb and flow of a colony that was living in a tree. That tree doesn't uproot and move. It doesn't change locations as the forest and the, the forage and fauna and everything like that changes. It stays in one place. So that means that it has to ride out the ebb and flow of the seasons and the ebb and flow of both nectar flows and dearths and pollen flows and dearths, um, the cold weather, the hot weather, when they need water, when they don't, when they need salt, when they don't, but it's all based on a fixed point in location. That colony never right. moves. No. The commercial beekeepers completely the opposite. That colony never stays stationary <laughs> for a long period of time. Moving around and uh, never spend an entire cycle, an entire year in the one's place. And for that reason, commercial beekeepers have to rely in a way uh, on portability of the food that they need to provide those bees, especially uh, the pollens, the, the proteins that they need to rear those bees and the nectar is always been replaceable by sugar syrup and things like that. Or corn syrup. Not a good thing. Don't do that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The portability of those pollen substitutes to feed their bees when they don't know what the forage is locally, if it's even, even available locally, or if it's even not polluted, not filled with pesticides as well, is something that matters to people that transport their bees everywhere in the country. Now, are you a static beekeeper, a backyard beekeeper in effect, or are you a commercial beekeeper that is transporting your colonies? Your answer will dictate how much, you know, uh, on which side of this divide you might be as far as feeding pollen substitutes. Right. And, and to preface this, it, this is not a, you should never do or you should always do. It's not a black and white scenario. Like everything in beekeeping, there's a giant shade of gray and you've got to figure out where you fit into it. There may be scenarios where you shouldn't intervene and other scenarios where you should. And Les has has famously said many times before that even though he likes to do very much hands-off as far as letting the colony do its natural cycle, sometimes you may run into a situation where if you don't feed them, they will starve and die. And then you have to make the decision do I intervene and feed that colony or do I let it die? You know, so sometimes those types of scenarios do come up. So going through this, this article, it jumps all over the place. It looks at what effects at a high level feeding a pollen substitute has to do on the overall population. Then it goes specifically into brood rearing and brood production. And then it goes into colony and population health. And then it goes into the effects on viruses and the effects on mites. And it goes into the effects on the queens. And again, it has polar opposite responses based on the different types of studies and stuff in there. So all of that stuff should be taken into consideration. But the main core of this is not necessarily so much a pollen substitute, good or bad. It is what constitutes the pollen substitute, what actually makes it up and constructs this different substitute. Because just like you can find in the pollen substitutes, you will find some that are subpar. There are natural pollens out there that are subpar and they have their place. So dandelion is a very good example. Dandelions, most people want to eradicate them from their front yard. They don't want them out there. They want that beautiful green grass. But in all honesty, that dandelion for a lot of areas is the first blooming nectar and pollen producing plant that the bees have access to coming out of winter. And if you leave it out there, they can forage on it. And it absolutely helps them because there's no other options available. But if they only lived on sun or on uh, dandelion pollen, period, they would actually be malnutrished when it was all said and done and not be as healthy and strong as they would if they had an incoming variety of different pollens. So natural pollen can have its downsides depending on where it is. That's why a plethora of wildflowers is way more healthy than a monocrop of one thing. Right. And it's not so much that the pollen may have downsides. It's the lack of diversity in that pollen may have right. its downsides. So yeah, the downside is the, the lacking of specific essential vitamins, minerals, and amino acids and lipids that right. would be in the pollen. And all of them have different varying degrees and charts as this one may be really, really high in lycopene, but this one may not have any, you know, like different things like that are what make them higher quality or lower quality. So it's not that they're bad. It's not inherently bad. It's just that it's missing a well-rounded full diet. 
Mm -hmm. And just like we need a little bit of everything to, you know, we have the food pyramid and we need to eat a variety of things of uh, different qualities, protein, carbs, um, vegetables, all this stuff, right? And, and that's what's going to make our, our diet diversified and give us all the elements. We're going to pick a little bit everywhere. And it's the same thing with bees and pollen. So the best way to really help our bees, as always and will always be, to make sure that they're in an environment that has a lot of uh, various uh, different pollens and nectars available at a time when they need it the most. Uh, the thing that I wanted to point out before I forget is that as beekeepers and especially as um, people that commercial beekeepers as well as backyard beekeepers, we tend to think that if we don't feed our bees, they're not going to have enough food. They're going to be malnourished. We are kind of in a way thinking of it in terms of livestock, um, cows, pigs, you know, uh, livestock that is in, under our care. We have to feed or make sure that they have access to food every day. Because if they skip more than a day or two, they're definitely going to be malnourished and even die. And that's not the case with bees. Bees are hoarders, right? It's not because you're not seeing food, whether it be nectar or pollen, coming into the hive every day that they are malnourished. That is not the case. They have food stores. They have a pantry. And that's what their natural cycle is. Um, they're going to collect so that they can live off of it when they have dearth. And that's true with pollen dearth and it's true with nectar dearth. And they will store that bee bread and they will store that nectar and that honey. And so we have to kind of step back a little bit and not look at them like they're regular livestock. Right. The, that comes back to being able to read your comb and understand what's actually going on inside the colony. So if you open up a colony and you're doing an inspection and you find several, I'll say combs, because it could be frames or bars, several combs of capped liquid food stores like honey and nectar, you find a couple of open liquid frames or bars, combs, <laughs> right. or, and then you also find several pieces of comb that have solid walls of pollen in there. That's the bee bread that's going through the fermentation process. That colony has food, but if you open up the next colony and you go through and you look and all of the comb is empty and dry and you can't yeah. find any open liquid or any cap liquid, you can't find any pollen in there. You can't find that bee bread. That colony is starving. That's when you make that decision. Do I intervene or do I not? And sometimes that intervening Anything's better than nothing as far as quality, but keep in mind, regardless if it is again, real natural pollen or a pollen substitute, quality is king. The, the higher the quality it is, the better it's going to be for the bees. And in some cases, the, the more they're going to accept it. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, the more it's going to be palatable, the more it's going to be sought after, all that good stuff. The, the, there's also important to remember that there's a spectrum. It's not black and white. It's not, they have no food or they have too much food or plenty of food. Very often you'll find, you know, some nectar, some honey, and maybe a little bit of pollen bee bread into the combs. Well, if they're looking healthy and then everything is looking like um, it's moving along, that doesn't mean they're malnourished. That means they're just got just enough for them to go along and, and keep thriving. Um, sometimes you can also have problems with too much food. You can have baffling right. roost nests, whether it's with nectar or bee bread, believe it or not, that's our problem in central Texas right now is we're finding way too many combs of bee bread and nowhere for the queen to lay. So, and I'm looking at people saying, well, I'm feeding them pollen supplements right now, but why? What is, that's also the question we should ask ourselves. Why are we feeding? First, what's the goal? And second, what's the need, right? right. Because the, the, the whole point of this research, really what I retained from it as a, as a bullet point conclusion is that if there's any pollen available whatsoever in nature around those bees, those pollen supplements are likely doing nothing and are more likely to be a waste of time and money for you to give that to your bees because they're probably not going to eat it. They're probably going to discard it because they prefer the natural pollen by far. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you this just because it made me chuckle when you were saying what's going on in, in central Texas right now. And yeah. I don't know if it's going to be able to see or not, but that says Ken Milam. <laughs> oh, he texted you. <laughs> it says, yeah, up there somewhere there, it says Ken Milam. And Ken says, damn heat. I'm feeding one-to-one -one sugar water every week. Nothing for the bees to eat. My response, 
that's funny. It's hot down here too, but I'm not feeding at all because when I checked mine last, they had plenty of stores still from the spring. Well, Ken's response. Oh, okay. And I'm like, so did you go look <laughs> or did you just say, damn, it's hot. So let me feed the bees. Cause they must need beekeeping. That's what a lot of people do. They're like, it's hot. Everything is dried out. I'm sure there's no food for my bees. So I'm just going to have to feed them. And the point is that, you know, it doesn't mean that because it looks like that there's nothing in there. Right. It might actually be backfilled in your bird's nest. And if you feed any more nectar, especially you're going to have that much more of a problem. What it's going to do is going to stop your queen from laying because she's going to have no space right and can potentially even kill your colony that way or definitely take away from its strength i wanted to show you what uh i don't know if what if you can see what yeah. i'm looking at that's uh, pollen in a comb yeah. And I have too much of it. And everybody's like, oh, there's nothing for the bees to eat. That's not necessarily true. You cannot until you open your hives. Yeah. And and that's always, that's the age old question. Go back to season one, like episode four. Did you look inside your colony? (laughs) Like, I think it probably started like closer to episode 15, but still, you know, that became a repeating question for me was, but did you open the colony? Did you look inside the colony? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Now, once you've decided, okay, maybe I want to do this. Maybe I don't. There's a couple of different ways of doing it. You can force feed it to them. You can put it inside the colony in a patty form. You can make it a liquid form and feed it to them that way. You can leave it as a dry powder and not put it inside the colony, but leave it out in an open feeder so that they can find it if they need it. And you and I have both discussed this before on here that that is, if we are going to do it, that's our preferred way way for us. Yeah. We'll provide an open feeder. It'll be out there. If they need it, they will go get it. I'm not forcing any colony to take something they don't want. And in a lot of these studies, they found that sometimes it was really hard to tell, did the bees consume it or did the bees chew it up, carry it out of the colony and spit it out somewhere. They were just, yeah, they were cleaning out the patties that were put in there and force fed to them. So Sometimes, you know, just because you put it in there, it doesn't necessarily correlate to, well, they ate it, obviously. It could be that they didn't want it and they removed it. Um, and it, it could also cause other problems too, like a hive beetle outbreak of tons and tons of hive beetle larvae. Because if your bees ignore it, the hive beetles will definitely take it up as a free buffet. <laughs> so... And I would go even further than that. And that's kind of the point of this article as well, is that the research in the literature is not there. There's not enough research in literature to say if any of those products are any good or if they're subpar or if they're even potentially toxic. And what it shows is that in some instances, you can actually create problems, not just with small hive beetles, but with other unintended unintended consequences, those famous unintended consequences we talk about all the time. Uh, But for example, if you feed those pollen supplements in the fall, there's been some research that uh, that show that sometimes you can end up with uh, brood rearing burnout. Yeah, so you're actually fewer, less brooding in the spring than you would other have has otherwise have had if you had not fed any of those pollen. Uh, yeah, I made I actually made I have a bullet point of that as well that went through and it talks about if you were going to feed the substitute to bolster the colony up, mm-hmm. feeding it to them in the spring did equal a big increase in brood production because you're they're, they're already looking to start expanding. You're just giving them a head start before nature provides the, the pollen out there. If you did it in the summer, though, they didn't find any real difference between the natural pollen coming in and feeding the pollen substitute. There was really no brood change. But if they fed it in the fall and they've been doing it all year, you're absolutely right. It actually led to brood burnout where the colony had already exhausted all of its reproductive resources and it didn't really do well. Um, one little little side note there, we mentioned the arguments back and forth between a commercial beekeeper and yourself over this whole thing. And when I first heard about the discussion, I brought up the fact that it was very interesting to me because I know firsthand that that specific commercial beekeeper purchased a ton of pollen patties because that's what they put in their colonies to overwinter them so that they can make tons of splits in the spring and take them to the almond orchards and whatnot. Well, they ordered a ton of these pollen patties that they then turned around and claimed were subpar and caused more damage to their colonies coming out of winter than not. And so 
that was another little contradiction in the whole argument about yes, you should or no, you shouldn't and why you should. When this whole article is about the quality of the things that we're putting in there and they firsthand said and blamed one of these major producers for killing a lot of their colonies because their pollen substitute was subpar. And I thought that was really interesting. (laughs) What was interesting to me is that knowing that they still 100% disagreed with my recommendation of not automatically feeding supplements, uh, pollen supplements. And that was a, that was a verbatim. I 100% disagree with your recommendation, quote, unquote. (laughs) I think it's out of principle. They have to disagree with me just because. (laughs) Yeah, they would do the same with me. Don't feel bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's okay. But to your point, um, there might be a marked uh, increase in brood rearing in the spring, but only if there's no other pollen available, it's out, if it's out of season, basically, right. if it's not a time they're supposed to brood up, you can force them into brooding up earlier. But that even if it's got a certain level of success and you've picked the right pollen patty, that's not going to have unintended consequences like toxicity or, or increasing uh, pests and pathogens or other things, because that happens, by the way. Yep, that's another um, bullet point. Uh, the uh, the fact that you're forcing them to brood up and uh, outside of season can lead to disastrous consequences in itself. For example, you might end up having a overly broody colony that decides to swarm out of season and your mated queen leaves and she leaves behind the, the virgin queens that are, that's got nowhere to go to mate. There's no drones right, right now. Yeah, so all the look, colonies in nature did not get the pollen substitute. Therefore, no, they did not raise brood and they haven't raised any drones. That's right. So your queen has nobody to mate with. <laughs> and the, the uh, so that's one aspect of things. Plus you've lost half of your bees because they left with that queen because you didn't expect them to swarm that early in the season. Right. If they don't swarm and they still have a lot of brood, um, you, you have two things that can happen. You have either, uh, they're going to go through their stores that much faster, trying to rear that brood and feed that brood, but also, um, so they might run out of food that way, but also they might end up, um, uh, starving and, and freezing to death because they're going to try to protect that brood. If there's any kind of cold snaps, all of a sudden it becomes much more dire for them to keep that colony warm, that brood warm. And that's going to really expose them to starvation. Whereas if they were broodless or quasi-broodless with very small brood nests, it would be so much easier for them to huddle and and cluster and keep warm without having to go through all those resources. So you can actually kill your colony that way. the, The specifics on that break down to the fact that if there's no brood present and a cold snap hits, the colony only has to maintain a temperature around 60 degrees Fahrenheit for them to survive and ride that out. It doesn't take as much resources or energy drain for them to vibrate to generate that much heat. And there's nobody else to feed except for themselves. And they just have to take little sips of the sugar to go through and be able to continue doing this slow vibration. Mm -hmm. If you add brood in there, now you have a 30 degree increase, actually higher than that, from 60 degrees up into that mid 90 degree Fahrenheit range that has to be maintained, which is a huge consumption of energy to to have that output there. But at the same time, they have to feed the brood as well as keep it warm. So now you have a colony that you've been feeding. It's doing great. It's growing. There's nothing else coming in except for what you're feeding it. And then the classic for Central Texas, for those of you who are not in Central Texas, this never happens because you guys like now where I'm at spring doesn't happen until like May. And you're like, what in Texas spring starts in like the middle of January, beginning of February. (laughs) We have swarms in January. (laughs) Yeah. So spring starts stupid early, but inevitably at the end of February, every year, there is a cold snap that happens. And sometimes it can be as late as the first week or two of March, but usually the last couple of weeks of February, there's a cold snap. So You've artificially stimulated your colony. You've boosted them up. They're they're growing, going gangbusters. Like, and then all of a sudden you get this shit ton of snow and ice and it drops to 20 degrees and you don't want to go out in the cold. So you don't go feed them anymore, but they still need as much as they've been getting. And suddenly they burn through what was there. Now there's nothing to refuel that. The brood starts dying. They don't have any more fuel for them to keep vibrating. And suddenly the whole cluster gets chilled and dies. Yes, that happens a lot in Central Texas. And yeah. people wonder sometimes. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that you are really exhausting your queen. So I, I know 
that some people like to replace their queens every year. I think that um, for those of us that are finding they want to keep their queens as long as they can, as long as it's productive. And some of them are amazing, especially if they're local survivor stock. You just don't want to get rid of that to replace it by a breeder queen that was grafted and that's going to be of inferior quality very often. If you want to keep them, you don't want to burn them out, right? The more you have them brooding up on a constant basis, the more exhausted that queen's gonna be, the faster she's gonna run out of you know, um, uh, sperm in her spermatica. And, and so you're really burning out the entire colony and your queen at the same time. So that's something that, I mean, I like when my bees, and that's something that you know we all can call out for them for ourselves. I really like when my bees are following the natural cycles of weather and forage. And I find it's much easier beekeeping if you let right. them do that. You You're not trying to swim upstream half the time. You're going with the flow. That's right. Now let's talk about the concept of malnourishment. If you don't feed the, your bees, you're a bad beekeeper. The, your bees are going to be malnourished. You have to feed your bees. I've heard that at bee schools. I've heard that from that commercial beekeeper. Uh, and that's not true at all. We all we don't feed our bees. We don't have any problems. They thrive. They explode. They're full of bee bread and honey. And we have too much honey. It's in our way half the time. So this is not a black and white statement. And when people tell you these things, it's always like this. And you should always do it my way. That's not how you should do beekeeping. You should be in tune and follow what your colonies are telling you, what's going on in your local environment and what your needs and goals are. That's what should dictate how you keep your bees. And what's going on inside the colony. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, but in the local environment, yes. Yeah, so, so you, well you pay attention to the external environment and then you see the effects that's having on the internal environment of the colony itself within the hive. And you take all that and you come up with an informed decision, not an assumption that, well, it's dirt damn hot out here. I got to feed the bees because there ain't no food. <laughs> or commercial beekeepers are in central Texas telling me I have to feed my bees and I'm in Michigan and I'm a backyard beekeeper and it makes zero sense. Right, right. right. Or like you pulling out the combs going, I have no space because it's full of pollen. <laughs> Why do I need to feed them pollen? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, you have to kind of keep in mind all the exogenous factors and the endogenous factors to your colony and not listen to everybody, including us, uh, telling you, if we ever tell you this is the way you need to do this, you should just kind of take a step back and say, well, how does it apply to my specific circumstances? Because it's all about location. It's all about the genetics. It's all about your beekeeping style. And no two colonies are alike, even in the same neighborhood. And if you're really bored today, you can go look up those two really big words that Natalie just said that boil down <laughs> to within and without, as within, so without sort of, you know, inside, outside. But those that was that was impressive. That was, that was a good oh, use of vocabulary. You. Hey, <laughs> you know, you know, and here's a little tidbit that people might not know. And I'm just going to, I used to be a French um, conversation teacher, consultant, basically. And uh, so about 80% of your fancy words in English are actually French. And so that helps me because I'm, I'm French, right? But that's because, um, do you know why? Do you want me to tell you? Why? Go for it. Okay, so in the year 1044, I think 1044, the, the Normans in France, William the Conqueror invaded England. And once they took over the, the kingdom of England, they stayed there for 400 years or about. And French was spoken in the courts, and the English, the Anglo-Saxon languages were spoken in the in the farms, basically. The common areas, yeah. Yeah, so all the fancy words are now uh, of French origin, like prison <laughs> and jail, which one is the French one? Anyway, this is beekeeping. This is not French lesson. <laughs> but it's a fun, it was a fun little educational tangent, so that is big perfectly tangent. fine. Yeah, so that's a big so when, when you go through and you talk about the nutritional quality of pollen substitutes or pollen itself, one of the things that has sprung up here recently and recently is like within the last, you know, four or five decades is soybean popularity. Soybeans oh are gosh, easy yeah. to grow. They become hella cheap. So therefore they started being in everything. Mm -hmm. And from a bee's perspective, bees don't like soybeans. And when they would make pollen substitutes that were just the pollen or just the soybean protein, they ignored it. When they made it from the soybean flour and some other stuff, they ignored it. 
And anybody that did actually take it, they had very subpar effects with what was being given to them. So like most of the things out there, it's not just one source. Again, they have to then turn around and fortify that again and again and again with all of these additional proteins, amino acids, lipids, all this stuff to make it actually acceptable. But in some instances where the base product is something the bees detest, they then overload it with something sweet or sugary so that it will make it more palatable and make the bees want to eat it because the bees don't want to eat it. It's called force feeding. It is. It is literally like, here, I'm going to blend up your veggies and put it into your mashed potatoes. Just shut up and eat it, all right? Um, Don't ask me why your mashed potatoes are green. Just eat them. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. (laughs) So in those instances, there, there's a lot of different formulas, a lot of dis- different mixtures and stuff out there. And there's been a lot of different studies on this. And this article touches highly, like a very high level on some of these different studies. But there was a great study that um, I've mentioned before in one of my presentations that I do when I go out and I do the speaking, where they actually took multiple colonies, purposefully starved them of specific amino acids or specific lipids and, and proteins that are inside the pollen substitutes. And then after giving those colonies no other choices for a while, they had them in enclosures where they could actually fly out, gather and come back, but they couldn't go forage. Then they would give them alternatives. And in instances where the alternative was lacking the same nutritional element, the bees really didn't pay much attention. But when they gave them an alternative that was high in the missing nutritional element, the bees would completely abandon the original one and switch over to the one that was adding back in what they've been lacking. So Mm -hmm. something that most of the beekeepers don't realize, and and I like to, like I made up this adage, but it it gives you a good sense of of perspective. The whole fact that we attribute a dog's sense of smell to being a hundred times better than ours. Mm -hmm. A bee's sense of smell is a hundred times better than a dog's. They dissect things down to a molecular level and Mm -hmm. can tell you the genetics of an offspring and if it's good or bad and if it has this royal lineage or the actual chemical nutritional makeup of a grain of pollen to know what's in it and if they need it. So they are very adept at being able to balance what they need if it is available to them. So going through and finding a pollen substitute that also has prebiotics and probiotics and has a lot of these fortifications in there is going to be better for them if there's no other alternatives than just buying the cheapest thing on the market. And again, that's that's kind of where you can shoot yourself in the foot because yeah, pollen substitutes are cheaper than actual pollen, but actual pollen has a very short shelf life. So even if you could afford to buy real pollen, if it's not fresh, they're not gonna use it to rear brood. And so then you've spent a lot of money and it's still to them, it's like, yeah, and what do you want me to do with this? Like, we'll store it, but we ain't gonna necessarily use it. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing. I mean, uh, those studies showed there was a lot of inconclusivity and a lot of lack of research, and it was not done with right control. It's just kind of haphazard, and the formulations are all different, and it's just kind of super wild, wild west out there. So there's really no evidence of anything other than the fact that if you have any kind of natural pollen available, those don't make a difference. And so they also said if you incorporate natural pollen in those supplements, uh, they will increase the, the benefit by 30%. But so it's kind of a catch 22. If you've got pollen available, they're not going to take it. If you're, you know, the only time that's going to really make it, and, and even if you don't have any, they're not going to take it. And if they take it, it's only if they've got natural pollen that's really going to make a difference, right? right. But, so it's kind of like a, when is it ever useful if you're a backyard beekeeper? Right. And so that, that comes back to our scenario of if you do the open feeding and you leave it in a dry formula, and if it does not have pre and probiotics in there, you can buy powdered probiotics that can be mixed in with the powdered pollen. And that way it it's, it's the closest thing that I went out and I foraged while I was foraging. I also picked up all these other little elements off of the flower that then mix in with the pollen and I brought it back. That's the best scenario, because again, if they need it, they're going to look for it. And if it's available out there, they will find it. And if they want it, they will take it. If they don't need it or they don't want it, they're going to leave it alone. No harm, no foul. You did your part. You provided it. It's kind of the whole you you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Right. You know, like if it was thirsty and it wanted to drink that specific water, it would done so. <laughs> but to your point, um, 
also paying attention to what it is that you're making available. Right. right, because there's some specific brand names they were listing in the study. They did. I noticed that the further down into the study, they started dropping names, and I was like, "Oh, like, those are bad. You don't want to get those." And those are some of the ones that are the most common, in Be, the and they're also the most affordable. Day. Right. Yeah. Most and readily also, available, most affordable. And they also mentioned that when it's got soy, um, it tends to be also potentially uh, having negative effects, right. you know, increase through uh, shorter lifespan, some kind of toxicity, so a negative impact. So it's not because also you're making it available. You also have to think about the quality of what you're offering really. Right. And so. that's one of the, that's one of the questions that they actually pose within the article is because most of the studies are looking at brood production. Mm-hmm. They don't turn back around and look at brood health and viability. They just said, oh, look, they laid a lot more eggs and they're raising a lot more larvae, but they didn't go in there and then test the larvae to see, is that larvae actually benefiting from this? Is it nutritionally deficient in areas? Is it going to be malformed because it's malnourished or not getting what it needs? They didn't look at any of that. And they found also that it can have different consequences in the larval stage than it does in the adult stage. So feeding an adult bee, if an adult bee goes and gets pollen substitute, brings it back and eats it, it doesn't really have much of a determining factor on its lifespan. But if it feeds it to the larva, it has a determining factor on that larva's lifespan and potentially that adult bee that then becomes from that larva. So it's a, it's a very interesting kind of scenario to that. But the, um, the other part about the, the quality of it and what it does to the brood is in certain instances, they found that just pollen substitute period, regardless of the brand and the makeup, the presence of pollen substitute in most of their studies at certain times of the year, especially towards the fall, led to higher cases of viral loads mm-hmm. than colonies that just ate ra- raw natural pollen. So and- the introduction of the substitute allowed for viruses to be able to take better hold. Why? Because it's not nutritionally complete and it has deficiencies that they need for their immune system. I think of it as junking up the works, uh, gumming up the works. And it actually is, there's research on that uh, study that shows that it's uh, impoverishing the gut microbiome of the bees potentially as well. So you're basically clogging up their guts. Well, <laughs> uh, you do the same thing as a person. If you constantly eat fast food and junk food, that yeah. has no pre and probiotics to replenish the, the microbiome and the gut biome. But if you eat fresh veggies straight out of your garden, they're mm-hmm. covered in all these microscopic critters that your body needs to stay healthy. And so you do the same thing to the bees. If you feed them an artificially produced substance that is lacking in all of that, they're not getting the stuff that they would have gotten in nature if they would have went out and foraged it from a flower. Right. So like, I hate to anthropomorphize, but basically- I know and I make you do it all the time because I, I it's like the third or fourth time you've had to say that in an episode. <laughs> just, you just poke me, so I, I go there. <laughs> but basically the equivalent, and it's to make it the images a little bit easier to remember, is basically if you got nothing else to eat, processed food, junk food is going to, you know, potentially keep you alive, maybe not healthy, but, you know, prevent you from starving. But if you eat that all the time, you're not going to be healthy. And if you eat that instead of the natural food, uh, you're just going to gum up the works and and it's not going to be good for you. If you have natural food available, what's the point of eating processed food unless it's a little bit here and there as a treat? But then again, what are the unintended consequences? And more than that, what are the long-term consequences? Not just on the individual bees. There was no study done over you know, uh, more than one cycle on your colonies. Right. So do we really want understanding that the, the super organism is very intricate and has a lot of mechanisms that we don't understand. Do we really want to throw a cog into that, you know, right. and just kind of figure out what happens later? Well, this is, this one is a, a far reach. This is not specifically, it could be alluded to in some areas, but it is not specifically talked about inside there, but this is going to be like, that just throw the whole wrench into the gear. <laughs> we worry about things like neonicotinoids that have been coated on seeds that grow up in the plant that are systemic within the plant that go through and make it so that if an insect eats your crop, it kills the insect. And they have found that, yeah, um, when the bees gather the pollen from that and they gather the nectar from that and they take it home, it has sublethal effects 
on the brood that can cause the brood to grow up and have a screwed up GPS system or have other issues that make it to where they don't function like they should. And then if you've got a lot of them that are not functioning like they should, the colony suffers. Well, if you take that same thing and you jump over to the seed that the plant produces, if this stuff is running through the genetic makeup of the plants, such as a soybean, and it's been treated with all this stuff to make things not eat it, mm-hmm. taking that soybean and grinding it up and extracting the proteins and stuff out of it or using the powder from it, is that not the same equivalent as taking the pollen from the plant or the nectar from the plant that already has traces of those chemicals? Like, mm-hmm. it, it's- and, and you, you mix it with sugar syrup to make the bees want to eat it. So you're basically force feeding that junk to them that might, they might otherwise have avoided. Right. Exactly. They, they, and, and you put it directly into their colony on top of their frames where they have no choice, but to eat it or remove it. (laughs) With essential oils to top it off so that you can well and disrupt the uh, pheromone messages inside the colony. (laughs) But you know, you might've discouraged a couple of mites in the process. (laughs) Yeah, But that's not what the research shows. It shows that it, it, you know, if anything, it has a tendency to increase that. So, Oh, that's the other point. If you have a colony that's constantly brooding, you end up giving more opportunities for the mites to keep uh, reproducing and you increase that population by that much. That's right. Because earthquakes are good. Uh-huh. They're, they're sanitary cycles that the bees need to flush their system. And if you force them to keep brooding all the time, you're depriving them from those cleansing cycles. And also, if you were going to do something, it's much easier to remove mites that are on the backs of bees than it is to remove mites that are underneath cappings, cappings reproducing. Anyway. And one goes in and a minimum of three to four come out. So yeah. if you're constantly doing that, that's why I was going, yeah. you're, you're just having this sliding scale upward of yeah. mite population. <laughs> yeah, no, so I mean, just like with everything else, think about the unintended consequences. Do your own research, read that article, it's enlightening. And it might inform how your decisions when you are thinking, should I feed my bees pollen and should I not? And, and in my view, it's a difference between need and want. Do I want to feed those bees or do I need to feed those bees? Right. And, or do and you just feel like want. you need yes. to? <laughs> yeah, because they feel like they should feed their baby colony. Yeah. Right. So there you go just a a tiny little kernel of something to think about for the week. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there we go. Well, just keep in mind the research and the lack thereof. That's true. And a lot of those articles, a lot of the the different research projects that the article talks about did definitely have some lack thereof in there because in some cases there may have been a beneficial gain to skew the numbers in one way or another, or to conveniently ignore this so that you would get the outcome that you want especially depending on who may or may not be funding said research. So uh-huh. always keep that in mind too. <laughs> and is it real, a real effect or is it a placebo effect? That's, That's also true. That question. Speaking of, okay, so we need to wrap up, but speaking of placebo effects, how close are you to coming up with any type of uh, theories with the whole banana experiment? Oh, uh, so I have numbers. So my theory was initially, I was like, well, I'm going to stay as objective as I can. Uh, I want to do a peer review and I just want to see the results for myself so I can believe them. Uh, my gut feeling was it was not going to make any difference. It was not going to increase bird rearing and, and all that good stuff. But I'm like, fine, I'm just going to do it as a blind study. This side of the yard is getting measured with bananas. This one is not. And I had 30 colonies. So I got a lot of data for an entire, um, it was actually an entire month because um, they ran out of space before I could just kind of finish everything else. But that's the same amount of time that they were under study for in the other peer review study. And so what I did find that preliminary result is that the yard that has the bananas was actually lagging behind the one that was not getting the bananas. Yep. So it seemed like there was a detrimental effect. And I was actually very surprised with that result because I was expecting no difference. And what I saw was actually it might have had a detrimental effect. Now, to be um, fair, our colonies were actually on their nectar flow. And so they probably were finding some pollen as well. 
and, and the conditions might not have been exactly the same ones as the ones from the initial review. But still, <laughs> there's something to be said if you have colonies that are under the same conditions and one is fed bananas and, and is not doing as well as the one that's not being fed bananas, uh, they, there's some interesting results to, to um, conclusions to draw from that, I think. So there, uh, I will put this out as a bonus episode. This technically, there's no point necessarily mentioning this because as soon as I do it, it's going to go away. But technically, this has existed here on Patreon as one of the original bonus episodes. It's called Going Bananas. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to move it from Patreon and I'm going to put it out there on the main platform for everybody to hear. And if you're sitting there going, what the hell are you guys talking about? Go listen to that episode, Going Bananas, and listen to Ken and I talk through this crazy theory that popped up online. And then you can come back and you'll understand what we're talking about here with the study going through. So my only question before we get out there on the banana subject would be, would you consider doing, not saying you should or have to, but would you consider doing it again yes. when maybe there wasn't a flow so that you could compare yes. the results then? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and then to my point earlier, um, my initial goal was to do it over more time. And I think that if I have the ability, because you have to basically order packages and that's a lot of money and it's a lot of work initially to, to do all this stuff and, and doing it every year is going to be, you know, but I think that I should do it over not just one full season, one year, but a couple of years and kind of see what the longer term impact also is, right? I, I, I think that it's, uh, and, and over larger numbers would be great. But there's so many studies I want to do that it's going to cost me a fortune. I need grants. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I remember why I remember what we were talking about. It was a good episode or two ago when I made the comment. It'd be like, I mean, if you just want to throw your money away, give it to us. Yeah, there you go. Natalie can use it to fund grants. <laughs> Natural scientific beekeeping kind of a thing. <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope everybody has enjoyed today's episode. And you definitely have a little bit of reading and research to do if you so choose. Um, if not, you know, maybe just the conversation itself gave you some things to think about. And you can always go out there and check out the Hayes County Beekeepers Association on Facebook and dig through there and find the posting <laughs> and read the comments that we were referring to if you would like to get a chuckle. Also, it is a very good description of uh, how most beekeeping forums go, which is why I don't get on them. But anyhow, oh, it's, it's, uh, interesting. And you have to, um, it, it gets ugly really quickly. And it there's can. no need. Yeah. Beekeepers have so many opinions. <laughs> I know. And it's okay. That's what is interesting. We don't, have to, we don't have to fight about it. No, we don't. So, all right, everybody. Well, we're going to get off here real quick because uh, if you haven't ever tuned in one before, Natalie does do the chat with mindful beekeepers on Monday evenings. And it just so happens this is a Monday evening we're recording this. And so right. she needs to go. <laughs> every Monday night at 7.30 p.m. Central Time, except on large holidays. And you can find the link on our website at b-mindful.com at the bottom of the page. If you want to join us, you're welcome to. If not, you can also join us on YouTube. We do that live at the same time. So There you go. Plenty of outlets for you to get more beekeeping information. Look forward to talking to you again next week. But until then, as always, be good. And be mindful. Bye-bye, <laughs> everybody. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs>